This program is sponsored by Wicked, Chronic, and Natick, Massachusetts. Located on 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. coverage of Witchblade the series, and we're about to begin our new show, but as a special treat for the ending of the two seasons of Witchblade, we have the star of Witchblade herself on the show with us, Yancey Butler, who played Detective Sarah Pizzini. Thank you for coming on the show with us, Yancey. Of course. Thank you for asking. Hello, everybody. How has your quarantine been? Oh, my goodness. It's been uh, it's been interesting. That's for sure. You know, Hollywood is just shut down. So understandably. So um, I don't really know when this is going to pass over. I just hope everybody's healthy and happy. You know, that's the only thing that really matters. Yeah, that's that's the only thing we can hope for is that we'll come out of this uh, a better society. Yes, exactly. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. It's amazing to me that every other country is doing really well and that we're kind of struggling here. It's a shame. It's a shame. Yeah. yeah. It's there. Yeah. It's, it really, it really sucks. Um, yeah. It's it, phenomenal it, actually. It, it, it seems like if you're an actor and you want to get anything done, you got to move to Australia because they are filming in Australia. <laughs> like, uh, what are they filming right now? They're filming Falcon winter soldier, stranger things season four, uh, finally restarted and the new, and the next Jurassic world movie, as well as James Cameron's avatar too. Oh, that's great. I, I know, Jim. I, yeah, I have a film coming up in Italy, and, uh, you know, they won't let me into the country, and I can't really blame them. So I don't know how that's going to work out. Hopefully I'll be able to, you know, do this film, so we'll see. I think they're letting certain people travel as long as you have proven that you do not carry the virus. You have, like, you've gone from, like, A, from, like, the test results to quarantine to the airport to whatever, because right. I know a couple people, I know a couple people personally that said they were able to fly, but they had to go through, like, they, they you, you, what they had to do, it, it made it seem like they were going into a third world country, and they were just going to England, but they had yeah. to go through all these doctor visits, and then they had to be uh, in their house, and the person who picked them up or whatever had to be clear of the virus, bring them to the airport, then they were on a private plane with a whole bunch of other people that were all clear wow. of the virus, and now he's like, I'm living in a bubble, and nobody is allowed to enter the bubble at all. And he says, it's literally like, it looks like a bubble. And we have like people running, doing stuff for us on the outside that basically slide it underneath the door like a tray of food. Oh my <laughs> wow. God. Crazy. I, I mean, in a way, I can't blame them. You know what I mean? At least they're doing something about it. It's, uh, it's, really something that's got to be very interesting for him definitely definitely 
Um, so we're so a couple things are happening this year. It's not only the 25th anniversary of the creation of the Witchblade from Top Cow Comics, but it's also the 20th anniversary of the Made for TV movie, which launched the the TV series. I know. I can't believe it. It's it's crazy. It seems like yesterday. <laughs> now, how did you actually get the gig for Witchblade? Was there something you auditioned for? I, I did. Well, kind of. Originally, Oliver Stone was attached to the film. And, oh. you know, remember, it was just supposed to be a film. And uh, and we had no idea it was going to turn into a series. That wasn't on our plate at the time. So, originally, Oliver Stone was attached. And I'm uh, acquaintances with Oliver. And he had talked to me about it. And then I, I did have to go to network and uh, get their final approval for it. Oh, wow. Uh, was it a shock when it got turned into a television series? Oh my gosh, yes! It was. Crazy. <laughs> it was. I guess the film did really, really well in ratings. It was like the highest ratings that they had ever gotten, or something like that. And so they asked all of us if we wouldn't mind turning it into a series. And it never even occurred to me. And I, I didn't know quite how the series was going to work, but I said it sounds like a great idea, and I was on board. Was Were you most- familiar with Witchblade before you got signed on for the movie? No, and it's funny that you say that. Chris and I were talking about that. I had no <laughs> idea what, and, and they told me that I got the part, and I opened up the comic, and I was like, she's naked. She's completely <laughs> naked, and she's wearing a claw bra, and and her breasts are, are – I was like, I don't know how we're going to do this. Am I going to be – running down the street in high heels with a claw bra, you know, tripping over because I'm top-heavy. On, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, uh, no, I had not seen the comic beforehand. And the main thing that we wanted to do was to create a, a movie, but also to, you know, really appeal to the diehard fans of the comic. That was really important to us because we didn't want to disappoint those fans. Now, what's funny is that uh, one of the first guests we had on for the podcast was Ron Mars, and he has a prolific run on the comic book. And he actually got into the – he was the first writer to finally tell the origin of the Witchblade, what it is, oh, where it comes from, and all that good stuff. And there is a funny joke that we find out the Witchblade sentient, and it's actually male. And when Sarah discovers that, she she looks down at her body, and she's like, well, that makes so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> because it looks like clawed exactly it exactly. looks like clawed hands cupping protecting her breasts so. I, I know i know and i thought how are we gonna do costume wise like how are i had no idea i got scared actually i got a little intimidated and then and then i read the script and then i realized i was wearing jeans and a t-shirt did you have any sort of input on the actual wardrobe that you wore during the show I did. We well, I, it was hard during the movie. You know, I get off of a bike. You're not quite sure if it's a male or female. So I was kind of wed to these really male-oriented outfit, which was unfortunate uh, in the movie. And then we streamlined her to look a little bit more sexy for the series. So I was able to wear some clothes. And I, I actually had a lot of input in hiring the costumer Vicky Grave, who unfortunately has passed. But, um, yeah, I had a lot of input in hiring her because she was a phenomenal wardrobe designer. And so, um, yes, I did. Well, you looked amazing in the entire series. I just have to say that. They did a great job. Thank you so much. They did an amazing job. Hair and makeup does wonders. But we had a phenomenal team. The the crew of Witchblade was astounding. They were really great. How... um... 
how much actual uh, detective and cop training were you given? Did you have to go to, uh, what is it called, police academy or boot camp to get into the uh, mannerisms of being a police officer on television down? Did did you, Danny, you know, uh, the, uh, the actor who played Danny and Jake as well? Well, it's funny because all I play is like derelicts and cops. So I played a lot of cops in my career. And so I have done, not specifically for this show, but I have done ride arounds with cops and, um, and uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, cousins on the force. So I, but I have done ride arounds and spent a lot of time with, with police officers for training to play those police officers. Yes. Was that part of the motivation or inspiration for how you portrayed Sarah Pizzini in the show? Well, you want to be as authentic as possible, you know, and um, and I love playing cops. You know, I don't envy their job now, that's for sure, but I love playing police officers, and um, and uh, it's fun. It's really fun, and doing ride-arounds, it's a lot like our job in terms of being on a set where there are hours where nothing happens, where it's just dead time, and then all of a sudden everything happens at the same time. So you're doing these ride-arounds with these police officers, which means basically you're just waiting for something to happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get sprung into action. And obviously their lives are on the line and ours aren't on a set, but, but it's very similar. It's a hurry up and wait kind of situation. Was that uh, continuing for the filming schedule? Uh, was it kind of one of those fast-paced? We've heard with other shows that it's super fast-paced and you don't really get a lot of downtime. Was that like that with Witchblade? Yes, it was. We Well, yes, because unlike a movie, you have a set air date, obviously, so you're really scrambling. I, I liken it to, and you both are probably way too young, but there's an I Love Lucy episode where they're working uh-huh. in a chocolate factory. Oh, yeah. It's a classic episode, and and the conveyor belt starts going faster and faster, and they're trying to put these chocolates in the box, and they end up stuffing them in their, in their bra and putting them in their mouth because they can't go fast enough, and that's kind of like what television production is. We we never worked less than an 18-hour day on Witchblade, um, and uh, it was grueling. I was It was grueling. I was doing wow. 18, 19-hour days, and then every weekend – I was, we filmed it in Toronto and I was flying back to the United States to do publicity. So there really wasn't any downtime for that show. Wow. That's, that's a quite a hellish schedule. It seems it is. It's hard to maintain. It really is. It's almost, you know, you have to kind of be a machine to do that. And thank God I was considerably younger, but it was, it was grueling to say the least, but well worth it. I mean, I really believed in that show and I thought it just the whole look of it and feel of it was amazing, but to get the quality of that, it took a lot of money and a lot of time. You don't seem to escape comic books because you were also in the kick-ass, the two kick-ass films as well. Yes, I know. It was unfortunate. The first kick-ass film, I was in a lot more of the actual footage, but they had to cut it. for. And the director apologized to me. But, um, yeah, I got cut a lot out of it. But, yes, kick-ass was so much fun. And then I and then I die very early on in the second one, which was a great scene. I really – it was a lot of fun to play that. Out of all your roles, which ones are the ones that you consider your best? Oh gosh, I, Witchblade is definitely up there. I I really enjoy Witchblade, and then I guess 
there's a film I did with Wesley Snipes and Gary Busey called Drop Zone a long time ago, and that's always been one of my favorites. It's a fun film to watch about oh, parachuting, yeah. and it's a fun film to watch. Yeah, definitely. Right. That and uh, Hard Target with uh, Van Damme is probably the uh, – whenever I've said, oh, Recovering Witchblade, and they're like, oh, that's with the NC Butler. And I'm like, yeah, the Hard Target or Drop Zone are the two things that are mentioned as alongside of Witchblade. Yeah, Hard Target career. was – it was John Woo's first American film, and, and it's funny, I'm not a big fan of my job in that film, and, and, and I'll tell you why, because I don't do damsel in distress very well. You know, when you're with the ultimate protector, Jean-Claude Van Damme, there's not a lot for you to do. And so I, I literally tried to make myself as thin as possible, to look as helpless as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, at one point, I remember in that film, I believe it's in that, yeah, it must have been in that film. I pick up a gun and I call Jean-Claude's name and throw him the gun instead of using it myself. And it was very against my nature. It just seemed very silly to me. But it was a great film overall. Yeah, you actually have that tough-as-nails persona that really comes through on camera. Thank you so much, Mr. Seneca. I appreciate that. I really do. That means a lot to me. You definitely have, like, this presence through Witchblade that – like the look on your face, as Sarah, and it's it's kind of like the look you have like in 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 you know other films and roles and pictures I've seen of you currently. You have this like I've I've done some shit, I've seen some shit kind of look, to you, <laughs> which fits, which which honestly completely fits a cop working in in New York City. And yes, I mean comic books are comic books, and they're drawn to make everyone look like Captain America and Wonder Woman. Yeah, right, exactly. When you do it like a TV show or a movie, even like the Avenger films or whatever, you want these actors to look like they have seen some shit. And when, like, Tony comes out of the cave, when, like, when Robert Downey Jr. comes out of that cave as Iron Man, you know, he has got this completely different kind of, like, serious look to him. And throughout the entire show, I mean, whether it's the the first season, one dimension, the second dimension, the second season, um, it, it, it has this whole kind of, you know that that you 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 maintain that I've uh, seen some shit look to you. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, it's you know I grew up in New York City, so it's literally in Manhattan, so it's hard to to not have that look, I guess, inherently. <laughs> what the... in the in in the last episode when you're at Conquerbar's side and you can there's a very pulled in close up to your face and your eyes just start weeping. Was that something that uh, you as an actress can just do, uh, you know, a place that you go to in your brain where you're able to cry on command, or was that, uh, you know, eye drops? No, you you get to a place after, you know, I've been in the business 30 years, and, and you do have to cry on command, and it's hard. It's not easy. You know, you kind of feel like a monkey, you know, dance, dance. It's hard to... <laughs> It's hard to muster it up, but you go to a place in your in your brain where where you know where you're sad, and so you're able to conjure that up. Oh, it was a beautiful moment. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I wish I could remember the exact moment. It's been years since I, as we just talked about, it's been 20 years, and and it's funny when we were shooting in Toronto, they didn't air it in Canada, so we could never see the episode. Oh, we had to wait until yeah. If we went to a sports bar. There was one sports bar that actually aired it in Toronto, but other than that, we couldn't see the episode, so we had no idea really. I mean, I I looked at some of the footage while we were filming, but I never really saw the finished episodes until much later. Wow. Yeah. Can you ride a motorcycle? 
I can't. And and I I learned how actually um, uh, for some film that I did, but they wouldn't let me ride that bike. And you know why? Because the bike was expensive. They didn't want me ruining the bike. It was nothing <laughs> to do with my safety, right? They didn't care about me. It was about the damn bike. Oh man, bodies <laughs> are expensive, so they didn't want me anywhere near that thing. My uh, oh. my favorite character on that show, um, as much as I like you. My favorite character on the show, side character, let's just say, is got to be Gabriel. The character of Gabriel. Yeah, the- isn't he great? He did such an amazing job. John was so wonderful in that role. It's such a great role. But there was one thing I didn't quite understand, and we've talked about this in the show, because we really analyze every episode. But there was a comment Sarah made to Gabriel about, why didn't you ever ask me out, Gabriel? And it's like, I never saw that as being a thing between those two. Yeah, he's got eyes for her, but so does Jake. But I don't yeah. see that being anything more than a brother, older sister, younger brother relationship. I didn't understand why would she insinuate that Gabriel and her should go out on a date. I think she was just teasing him. I believe that she was just teasing him, but I agree with you. It was an older sister, younger brother relationship. And even though he had, you know, a crush on her, I mean, who didn't in that show? You know what I mean? I think that that was kind of the underlying, you know, thread throughout those shows. What did you think of the, uh, and God, you guys did the whole time travel rewrite history thing before the Avenger movies did. What did you think uh, of that? I know. We were before our time. Wasn't that amazing at the end of the first season to when Danny and I are sitting in the car? I, that was one of my favorite moments of the whole show. Right. And you realize that it was all, I loved, I thought that that was brilliant. But a couple problems came up later on. You never got back, they never got back the Gallo storyline. Gallo was still free. In fact, Sarah and her seemed kind of chummy in a most recent episode that recovered. And uh, the White Bull storyline never resurfaced. I'm assuming that was going to come up in season three, maybe, if there had been a season three. I would assume so as well. You never – it's so hard when you're doing a television series because often you will finish filming uh, the season without knowing if you're being picked up. And that's why you'll often see kind of a a neat little bow at the end of seasons, but – but with possibilities for future episodes, it's a, it's got to be a very difficult situation for the writers and for the showrunner. Was there any talk about season three coming back on any other channel or anything? What was the, what, what's your was, story? There was, what happened was the show was, you know, it was unfortunate. You know, everybody says, Oh, it's such a shame you got canceled. But again, remember that we got, there was a talk about season three because of the fan base, there's always a talk about a season three. And, you know, it's a shame that we did end uh, the show, but we got, you know, a whole television series out of just a film that we didn't expect. So we've always talked about doing something. And it would be great to even do now, you know, to age the characters and to do something like that. We, we've all talked about it, the cast members. We've remained close throughout this time, and uh, we'd love to do something like that. Oh, you've remained close with all the other cast members. That's excellent. Yeah. Uh, do you talk to them often? I do. Well, David and I are particularly close. Uh, David Chokichi, Jake, and myself. And uh, we've actually done three films together since Witchblade. So we work together quite often. One that's wow. coming out this year or going to be, was supposed to come out, the, the one that you were supposed to be on the podcast for, actually the radio show for, a few months ago before the quarantine crashed down. 
That's right. We just had a film come out called Emerald Run, and David's phenomenal in that. And then we just completed another film in December, which has yet to come out, obviously, called uh, The Last Call in the Doghouse. And, uh, yeah, David and I work together quite often. And Eric actually direct Eric Nottingham directed Emerald Run. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, he did a great great job. I had no idea that that was in his toolbox in terms of skills and he did a really phenomenal job. I'm such a huge fan of the comic book and we've talked about Nottingham's portrayal in the show versus the comic book are so night and day because on the show he is literally Kenneth Irons like bitch. He is basically yeah. Kenneth Irons <laughs> yeah. little like go do what I tell you to do and don't question me. But in the comic book he was that way in the beginning. But he has his own agenda going on in the comic, and Harry and Sarah become lovers, and she has to break it off when she becomes a cop again because she realizes that's not a good idea. And then he comes back later on, this giant storyline I'm not going to bother getting into. We'll, we've discussed it on the podcast. But he is his own individual, and she, he is like the poison in Sarah's life that she can't escape from. She's, I mean, he's the bad boy that every woman dates that you're not supposed to be dating. And right. Her as a cop, it's really conflicting because, you know, he's a wanted murder assassin, but she can't oh, help wow. sleeping with him. And he eventually, um, I don't know if he finds redemption, but he eventually finds his own Witchblade-like artifact in a storyline called Artifacts. Um, but uh, I, I don't have any problem with the actor who, was, who played uh, Ian Nottingham. I thought he was okay for the context of the show. But uh, I liked his portrayal in season one more than I did season two, I thought. Really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. I should go and read the comics because I never I, – I didn't have any – working 18, 19-hour days, I never really had time to refer to the comics. But as I said, being that you were a diehard fan of the comic, it was so – it was people like you, Chris, that we really, really wanted to please because we knew that Pazzini and that the Witchblade already had a fan base, and it was very important to us to to – uh, appease and to to whet their appetite for this series for the movie. Yeah, Ian Nottingham just seems like such a creeper a lot of the times. Yeah, yeah kind of, he, right. And he would skulk around and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was scary. It was uh, it was a little weird. And uh, they left um, they left the ending of season two, you know, hanging with the whole Gabriel now has the uh, spirit of Kenneth Irons inside him, and. What does that mean? Where is it going to go? Yeah, I know. I know. We got a little out there. The show started to get a little out there, but it was. Uh, but uh, you know, I do know that the showrunner and and create, you know, the uh, guy who wrote the movie and did a lot of that. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm okay. um, The guy, the showrunner, and uh, he had it all in the back of his mind. He knew exactly where he was going at all times. Sometimes I would get confused, but he was really good with all of that. How heavy was the Witchblade itself? And were you oh actually in the full body armor? Because there's a couple scenes where you're in full body armor. I, it, it's a funny story, actually. The, the gauntlet itself never fit me. In three years, it never fit me. And as a matter of fact, one of my funniest stories is I'm in the air on cables flying around and having a stunt fight with Roger Daltrey. And the right. gauntlet... <laughs> flew off of my hand and almost decapitated him. It was, it was horrible. And he goes, "She's going to decapitate me." It was. It was. 
we all started laughing because it never fit me. It would go flying off at any given moment. It became an on-running joke on our set. It was really bad. But in the movie, I'm wearing armor, and that was real armor. That was taken from, like, some library, and I cut myself badly. So I told them that if we were to pick up the series, that we had to get that in tow. So we actually met with somebody that makes armor that looks real, but that is, you know, plastic and not as heavy. And, and uh, yeah, it was always a struggle to get that going. Do you know what happened to the Witchblade or the, the gauntlet or the bracelet? Do you know who has I it today? Oh, I wanted that bracelet badly, and I think <laughs> that Warner Brothers still owns it. I love that bracelet. It's gorgeous. And, I, uh, no, they wouldn't let me have it, that's for sure. What you got to do is you got to find somebody who works in the Warner Brothers archives or or, yeah. or 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 find out if somebody at Top Cow has it because, who knows, maybe they get yeah. it to uh, – Maybe they gave it to Mark Silvestri, who's the president of Top Cow. I was going to say his name. Maybe they did give it to Mark. Yeah, yeah maybe they did give it to Mark. Bastard. <laughs> what, um, what, did you keep anything from the set? I have my leather jacket. Ooh. Yeah, I got a lot of the clothes from there, and uh, I kept my leather jacket, and uh, yeah, it's still a great jacket. You got to do us a favor, and we'll post it with the episode. You got to take a picture sure. of you in the leather leather jacket. You know, look, oh, like okay. a, look like a badass when you're doing it, and then just send us the picture, and we'll post it on the Dead TV podcast and the Radio of Horror uh, Facebook pages when we post this episode as your, uh, you know, your your photo f- to attach to the episode when we post that you're you've been on the show. Okay, fun, absolutely, done deal. I do boxing as kind of a you know workout hobby. Good for you, Mistress Senna. That's a workout. That's a workout. It is, it is. And watching you do boxing on the show kind of made me a little bit motivated to get back into it, you know, during the quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, are you actually a boxing enthusiast, or was that just written for the character? That was written for the character, and I'll... <laughs> That was written for the character. I'm laughing because I almost died. I know how hard a workout that is. And I was actually, for that episode uh, that you're referring to, where it was like the 11th annual police boxing tournament, where I, you know, where I win, which would have never happened. But um, I uh, trained with Lennox Lewis's old trainer. And... um, he was this short man, and uh, he was southerner, sweetheart of a man with that southern charm. And I remember I asked him, because you have to choreograph all of that very carefully, like you do any stunt. And I said to him, you know, is it okay if I end up hitting the guy? Because I'm, you know, I'm doing my best, but is that okay? And he stepped back and he put his hands up and he said, well, it's not like the man stole something from you, but yeah, you can hit him. He don't mind. <laughs> yes, okay. And I, so unfortunately, I ended up clocking this guy in the head, but as you saw, he was so big that it was like, you know, swapping a fly off of his head. It didn't even bother him. But yeah, it's my hat's off to you, Zeneca, because that's not an easy uh, sport. No, I, I enjoy it because it's the really the only sport that I can do, and in the space of a half an hour, I'm just dripping with sweat. <laughs> yeah, sure, I believe it. I believe it. Uh, on the love scenes that you had with Conkabar, you know, yeah. they're very, they're very touching. Heart. Huh? Be still my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those love scenes are very touching. They're very um, obscured. Are they actually 
also awkward when you're doing them on set? Oh, very awkward. <laughs> it's so <laughs> awkward to do love scenes. It's, I, I've often, I've walked into a room and met the person and then you start kissing them. It's very strange. It's very strange for everybody. And they, and they have what they call a closed set. The, the more clothes you have to take off, the more clothes the set is. So they try to make you as comfortable as possible, but it's a really awkward situation. But but Kim Delury, who played Conkabar, was an amazing actor and such a sweetheart. And, you know, it really depends on the person that you're working with. And it's it's your job, you know. It, eerily enough and strangely enough, it's your job. So we he made me as comfortable as possible, and I him. Mm-hmm. You definitely felt, you know, coming across the screen that you both were very comfortable with each other. Oh, yeah. I had an on-set crush on Kim. I always used to tell him, I have the biggest crush on you. Yeah, he was adorable. I loved Kim. He was great. Now, what's kind of funny is, uh, and I don't know how much knowledge you have about this part of the production of the show, is that in season one, there's a lot of copywritten music in season one. I mean, they had songs by the go uh, the the um U2 and The Who and and more. But in season two, I distinctly remember um, they changed a lot of the music. And I'm wondering if you knew anything about that. For instance, the boxing scene actually plays to uh, 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 Black Sabbath's Crazy Train or Ozzy Osbourne's Crazy Train. Or no, um, one of one of his songs. But however, on the DVD, there's no music. Yeah, I do know about that. I know very well about that. As a matter of fact, um, what we aired turned out, the music-wise, music was uh, very different from the DVD, and that's because rights weren't secured, and it was a shame. I, um, I was very disappointed. We had people throwing music at us, like Peter Gabriel and Annie Lennox, and um, for free, and because they were fans of the show. And uh, wow. we just, yeah, I know, and we just... We didn't get the rights secured. Warner Brothers and TNT didn't get the rights secured. So when the DVD came around, we couldn't use a lot of those songs, and it was really a shame. Which is a real disappointment because Warner Brothers owns their own music label. They own the rights to music that they can use. Just use music you own already to stop all the the BS. (laughs) I know. It was really a drag. And I don't know if you know this, my father's a musician. He's in a band called The Love and Spoonful, which was a huge band in the 60s. And they did songs like um, Do You Believe in Magic and Summer in the City. Yeah. And he's actually in Witchblade. He plays a character in Witchblade. I didn't know that he was getting hired. They did it as a surprise for me. Um, but, uh, he's in Witchblade and he knows all about music rights and he was, he was enraged. It was an enraging situation. It was really disappointing. Tom actually is the person who mentioned that to me. He's like, do you know who her father is? And I was like, no, who's her dad? And he went on, he, he, he said, uh, the, uh, don't you believe in magic, which I always, you know, uh, um, associate with, uh, McDonald's commercials in the (laughs) eighties. <laughs> Which is like exactly. that must have been a chunk. Exactly. That must have been a bag of cash to get associated yeah. with McDonald's. Yeah, for the writers, sure. But yeah, it was good. But my dad's actually—he's uh, seventy-nine years old and he's still rocking and rolling. The Love and Spoonful is is been together for about twenty years now, as a lot of bands from that time revived. And uh, he's having a blast. He has more energy and works more than all three of us put together. It's crazy. 
I just found it, and it's not in front of me right now, but I'm going to hang it back up. But the photos that you signed to Mr. Zeneca and me, I have yes. the comic book store original um, TNT poster that the comic book store gave me in 2000 when Witchblade first debuted and they were taking the posters down of the oh. giant fold-out. It's folded up, but it's the giant poster, the red one with you holding the Witchblade, and it says... TNT, August 2000, whatever, you know, whatever the air date was for the original theatrical movie or TV movie. Oh, that's great. How fun is that? That's really fun. The gauntlet that never fit. Yeah. I'm wearing a gauntlet that never fit that almost, that almost killed Roger Daltrey. Yes, exactly. Oh, how fun. Do you, uh, do you hit the convention circuit a lot? I, I don't. When I'm not working, I like to. I, I you know, because... When you, I'm not doing theater, you know, in theater, you get an instant reaction on if people like your work or if you're on the right track. And, you know, in film and television, it's like, is she in focus? We're moving on. So I always like to meet, you know, fans and, and hear feedback on, you know, if they dig my work or not. And, and it's really fun to go to those conventions. I like going to them. Yeah, I do Dragon Con every year, of course, except this year. Oh, my uh, I did Dragon Con, the ones that last four days? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I've never been more tired in my life. I worked that one in Atlanta, right? Yep. Exactly, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I had a blast during that show. It was really fun, but that thing was huge. Oh, super huge. That's kind of the reason why they can't have it this year. <laughs> oh, what a shame. I bet. I bet. It's so weird. I know my dad's had to cancel all of his concerts, and I have all these films on hold. It's a crazy time. It's just so bizarre. Did you also know that Witchblade was coming out at a time that um, Xena was kind of on the way out, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer was in the middle of its heyday? So it was just you yeah. and Buffy on TV, really. Yeah. It was... Uh, it was quite a time actually i i i um i know that i won an not to toot my own horn but no, i won an award you're on, the actually. Podcast. you're on the podcast to toot your horn toot yeah right why not <laughs> i i won an award against buffy the vampire slayer and julian anderson for for um and i think xena as well for best actress which was great and um which was unexpected and um yeah we were really we we just had no idea that this movie would have taken off the way it did and then that the series took off the way it did and it's a shame it it just got so expensive it got we were always over budget to get the look and they just didn't want to do it anymore we were always over budget and it was a shame it was a shame what is harder doing uh, a tv series like witchblade which is physically demanding or a swampy movie like the Lake Placid films that you've been in, <laughs> which I had to ask about because they're they're up there in the weird creature like continuing monster movie series. <laughs> I know people dig them. I mean, I you know I'm a whore for hire. I'll do anything. You know, <laughs> but, um, you know wow. I don't even care. Anymore, but people say. <laughs> They, they really dig those Lake Placid films, don't they? They're fun to do. They're campy. I certainly play them campy. And, uh, you know, what's harder? They're, they're both hard because the budgets for those Lake Placid films are so small that we only have about three weeks to complete the whole film. So it's kind of like that conveyor belt with the chocolate that I was talking about. So both are kind of difficult and challenging. 
Um, I think Kevin Smith has once said that he's a, uh, and I have I, quoted this for myself as well, as being a, uh, a media whore, I'll do anything to promote myself for free. Yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well done, Kevin Smith, yes. <laughs> well, if um, my local drive-in, if I can convince them to do a special screening of uh, the Lake Placid movies, uh, I would hope that, uh, you know, you could make it out for a special appearance. <laughs> How fun. I love. I would even come just for the drive-in. I, I'm so impressed that you have a local drive-in. I miss drive-in. Oh yeah, that's we, what have, we should be doing now. We have one here too in um, in um, in uh, Menden, Massachusetts, and they uh, they've been selling out almost every day. And I coming bet. up, they're up, coming up, they're doing a double feature, which I think is hilarious, of The Wizard of Oz and Twister. Oh, that's a step. <laughs> It's the elements coming to get us. Yeah. I think that's so funny. Yeah, definitely. And I was just like, you know, they should do like a, an action, you know, a couple of like, you know, like 90s or 80s like action movies, like, uh, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and then someone else, oh, like a Van yeah. Damme movie or, or uh, you know, like a Wesley Snipes film, you know, or like a Black, yeah, Li- like a Black Lives Matter weekend yeah, with a couple of, uh, something like that. <clears throat> so much fun the first uh movie i ever saw in a drive-in theater i believe i'm dating myself but it was et and it was so much fun i love i love drive-in theaters we don't really get those in la we should but we don't have the space for them but um yeah you're not I aging lo- yourself that i mean mistress etica and i were both born in the uh, early in early 80s so we're we're right up there with you what is something that we can't find out on the internet about you that your fans would love to know Oh my gosh, I don't know. That's such a hard question to. I'd have to think about that, Chris. I wish I had a snappy answer. I like walking around naked. <laughs> I can say that. Uh, I like. I, I'm I a think nudist. a lot of your fans would love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I'm a nudist. I like walking, and I do it all the time now. That in LA, see, growing up in Manhattan, everybody can see in each other's windows, so you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and especially because it's so hot in California. Oh my god! Oh yeah, yeah. walk around so, naked a lot. It's uh, it's ninety five right now here in Massachusetts. Oh, so it's pretty hot there too. Oh my god, it's ridiculous. I I would walk around naked except for I have indoor air conditioning, so I'm I'm also yeah, right, good. <laughs> <laughs> but that was not the expect answer I was expecting. But yeah, no, yeah, it was good. not the answer I was expecting, but it just came out of my mouth. <laughs> filter at all. So there we have it. No filter. Boom. No Welcome. filter. Mr. Zedica, yeah. did you have anything else you want to ask Nancy before we let her go? What are you working on that you'd like to plug on our show right now? Well, I did, let me see, I did three films also, last year that are in the can. One of them is called Dembanger, and actually it's a horror film. I think they might have renamed it, but it won uh, the award, and they were going to show it at the South by Southwest Festival that also got canceled because of coronavirus. What was it renamed? And then, um... Emerald Run came out, which was really good. Uh, I did another horror film because it seems to be the genre called Severed Silence, yes, which is yes. a very good film, which is coming out hopefully pretty soon. And uh, and then the film with David, Last Call in the Doghouse. So I guess I worked more. Yeah, I did about four films, five films last year. But but Severed Silence is uh, is going to be a really great film, and I'm looking forward to that. Hannah spends 20 years pressing a maleficent curse that was placed upon her bloodline, only to have her family member knowingly release it, forcing her to kill or to be killed. 
Yes, it's a really good horror story. And more than that, it's 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 also a love story. It's not just your typical gore, and it, it has a really great plot line, and uh, I'm very proud of it. And it's written and uh, directed by female directors, which is also very cool. Two female directors, and who who wrote the script as well. And it was I love working with female directors because it's so rare, and um, and it was wonderful. It was a great experience, and they did a phenomenal job. Do you also have any charities that you're part of that you'd like to plug? I at the moment, no. I I do a lot of work with animals and something, but I don't specifically have a charity that I do at the moment. No. Okay, that's fine. We can we'll cut that out. But um. Just curious, just Please, in case you did. Thank you. I don't want people to think I'm selfish or anything no, like that. I, no, I, no, 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 no. That's fine. But I just, I always forget to ask it sometimes, and I want to do. Uh, no, it, thank so. you. That's a great question to ask. But what you can do is plug where people can get a picture uh, signed by you. Sure, people can get. Well, they can contact me on Instagram. I'm the real Yancey Butler on Twitter. I'm Yancey Butler, and my Facebook page is Yancey Butler page. And um, you can actually buy photographs off the Yancey Butler page, and uh, I'll be happy to sign them for you and personalize them. I That's wonderful. I'm looking forward to receiving mine soon. Yes, and I'm so happy you bought one. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun, guys. Oh, awesome. I'm glad I was able to find your um... – I, I'm glad to know about your Twitter because we've uh, we've definitely been uh, promoting the hell out of the Witchblade on Twitter. But I'll try and find you on Twitter. So it's I'm Yancey Butler. Correct. There have been some people that claim to be me, but they're not. So that's why Instagram is the real Yancey Butler. Twitter is I'm Yancey Butler, and then Facebook is Yancey Butler page. Fantastic. Excellent. Well. And that was Yancey Butler on the show with us. It was awesome to have her on for the final episode of Witchblade. We saved the best for last, kind of like the way we did with John D. LeMay, because that was technically the you know, end of his Friday the 13th run. So uh, thank you, Yancey Butler, for coming on the show. Go to Yancey's fan page on Facebook to order a picture from her, of her. You can order, like, there's six different ones. Some with the, the Witchblade poster in the red. That's the one Mr. Zeneca and I got from her. But it was great to talk to her about the, the her run on Witchblade and, and what she's doing in her career these days. And we're going to jump into the series finale of Witchblade here on the Dead TV Podcast. You beak, you book, you buck. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great interview. Okay. Uh, last episode, Season 2, Episode 12. Ubike. Ubike, okay. Ubike. <laughs> Originally aired August 26, 2002. Sarah awakens from a nightmare to discover the Witchblade bracelet gone from her wrist and New York City in chaos after a bizarre homicidal spree. When she finds that the killer's recently assessed Cyberfaust.net, a website run by someone who knows about the Witchblade, Sarah suspects Kenneth Irons, risking her sanity. She pursues the site and becomes a helpless due to Cyberfaust's spell. Sarah is forced to battle against the Witchblade and its diabolical new wielder, whom is under Iron's employment, but without her special abilities. Okay, hold on one quick second, because I just found something about UBK I was not aware of, but I'm not finding the one I want to read. Hold on, is this it? It's a Spanish word. It's also a poem by Rup... Rup, uh, Rup, uh, Rup. Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling? Yep. Ah. 
Okay, I'll edit all this out because I, I'm not. There's just 30 million versions because everyone's got their own version of it. So anyway, pause real quick. So the title of this episode is a poem by Rupert Kidling for, about the Boer War, published in the Five Nations in 1903. The title is derived from the motto in the battle honor of the Royal Regiment of Artillery. However, the opening lines are attributed to the lack of knowledge of Latin within the ordinary ranks of the gunners. Wow! And here I thought it was just a Spanish word for locate. It means because every- she was missing the witchman. It means everywhere in Latin. And that's kind of what's happening in this episode. Everywhere is 2020 America in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, it's not homicidal sprees. Uh, Not yet. (laughs) Wait until the election this year, Mr. Zeneca. Don't get get him started. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So in this episode... Wait until we get to War of Worlds. Some power is taking hold of people and immediately changing their their minds and their moods to becoming uh, a murderer. And even them, they themselves don't have any real memory of it. And this gets played out where we find out that Kenneth Irons is actually, you know, putting his feelers out into people's brains this way and committing these atrocities. Something like that. Um, we open it with a... Uh, with a, a fight, dream within a, dream. a dream within a dream is a crazy blonde woman with some nice cleavage. Fights Sarah, kills her, and stabs Ian Nottingham through the head. Ouch! And Sarah wakes up to get a call from Danny, and the clock says five five five, but changes to six six six. There's yeah. no clock that will say six six six. Not even military times is six six six. True. Uh, and and this person is uh, Lucretia and Lucretia Borgia. Uh, I have some information about her, but I'll get to that a little later. Uh, yeah, she is um, I, I um, okay, so I don't know if this was the right, uh, okay, so I wrote in my notes several times that I call her the uh, the hooker blade. Oh, she looks good, but not that good. But she's a hooker. <laughs> Am I wrong? She's the witchblade wielder and she's a hooker. Hooker blade. <laughs> Uh, she actually says several times in the episode that uh, she's uh, her pontiff's daughter, her brother's mistress, and her husband's poisoner. All which are things that are technically may be true about the actual Lucretia Borgia. Uh, she might have been a pope's daughter. Um, she was uh, uh, Pope Alexander VI's daughter. And then... Uh, one of her half brothers, she might have been his mistress. Yeah, a lot of things about her life, uh, just as Gabriel says in this episode, a lot of things about her life might have been actually more overblown and, and made her out to be the bad guy. But in this episode, when we're actually seeing Lucretia Borgia, she is the bad guy. Hmm. And one of the most unique things happens in this episode: the Witchblade talks to Sarah. Which I'm wondering they would have set up for a much bigger thing to happen in season three. Grace Slick, a singer-songwriter um, who was born in 1939, uh, is the voice of the Witchblade and is a uh, has songs and on many different films such as American Hustle, The Game, Resident Evil: Extinction, Kong Skull Island, The New Twilight Zone with Jordan Peele, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Legion, Gotham, Twelve Monkeys, Stranger Things, so many, so many things. 
But the thing that you will more than likely know her for is that she wrote the song White Rabbit for Jefferson Airplane. And so uh, we know that song, or she's the one that wrote it, and she wrote it with a previous band and brought it over to Jefferson Airplane and recorded it with them. I did know that song. I took me. I had definitely had to look it up to give it a uh, to uh, give it a playthrough just to see if I remember it. And yes, I do. Uh, that even in Sarah's apartment is that Sarah can't help not show her belly button because the way her shirt is unzipped at the bottom and the top it forms this nice little V with the top the top part of her jeans and then the V where the zipper unfolds <laughs> to show off her belly button in a nice triangle shape. <laughs> Pointing that out, <laughs> even in her own apartment, can't not show her belly button. <laughs> the actress that plays uh, Lucretia Borgia is Kate Leverling, uh, Levering, and uh, she was actually in the 2016 movie Cruel Intentions. Oh, who'd she play in that? Uh, she was also on Drop Dead Diva TV series for since who was she? years as the character Kim Caswell. Who was she in Cruel Intentions? Annette Hargrove. I don't know that character. <laughs> I don't. I, I barely remember. I mean, I, I know the four main people in Cruel Intentions, and that's it. Yeah, she was also in the television show Kevin Hill as Veronica Carter. Uh, in a lot of television roles, uh, CSI Miami, she had a role there. It was one of the episodes. Cashmere Mafia, uh, she played Catherine Cutler. Mm. Here's a quick question. What happened to Ca- Captain Dante, and who the hell is this guy? I don't know. This is a captain just for this episode. Apparently. I mean, Dante completely disappears. Joe, we never see Joe's retirement. We never see Joe die again, if that even happened. Dante appears in one episode, and then we have this new guy who sticks the feds on Sarah. By the way, did anyone remember that that Jake is a fed? (laughs) Did we forget things? I mean, God, these writers are freaking stupid sometimes it's like you create all these plot points from the previous season and nobody pays attention to it in season two and we didn't ask yancy about a lot of this because she wasn't a writer she was an actress being uh who was given the script and even she was a bit baffled by like uh wait what what, what are we doing I, what about this whole thing that we did last time and she couldn't even explain it it's like we unfortunately weren't able to track down any of the writers from the show uh, we had a lot of success with the people who worked on the comic book, but even they couldn't even explain like what the difference is between seasons one and two. I mean, David Wall came on with us, who was one of Sarah's creators, and talked about how like the shift in change between seasons one and two was really jarring because plot elements were just left out in the open and did nothing with Jake being a fed, Dante, the White Bulls, all of that, nothing. It just mainly focused on like Ian Nottingham just like looking gracefully at the camera and staring into the fireplace and talking to the dead Ian uh, Kenneth Irons. Yeah, and we actually do find out that Kenneth Irons is dead, but he transferred his consciousness to the Internet. 
Right. He's Faust. <laughs> the the actor that actually plays uh, Captain Oki for this one episode alone, Fulvio Cesare, uh, he is also uh, known for Resident Evil Afterlife. Conkabar's still in the hospital, and that's all we see of him other than a flashback. Yes. That's it. Nothing else. The uh, the the hooker blade picks up two people and then kills them. After uh, we also see a wife murder her husband earlier in the episode. She's apparently a heart surgeon. Mm-hmm. And I do love the guy who tries to pick her up for a date and drives away. <laughs> this episode gave me a lot more questions than answers, really. Uh, so I suppose that they were hope- hoping for a season uh, three of this, but. Yeah, uh, Lucretia is explained in this episode to have been from the other bloodline of Witchblade wielders. So, as we saw with uh, a previous villain, where that person is a kind of a clone of Sarah, uh, this one is completely from the secondary bloodline, which also doesn't line up with the timelines that he had already stated. I, I don't really know where they were going with this. But Lucretia Borgia can actually wield the Witchblade just fine. And, and it, they show her uh, wielding it pretty much the entire episode. She kills people with it. Yeah. It seems um, that they were setting this up for something else, and it just, unfortunately, with them getting canceled, it failed to go anywhere. Um, I kind of thought maybe she was like from an alternate timeline, but they uh, they didn't go that route, the route they went with her. Um, I just thought was pretty lackluster. Yeah, and, and after all of the killing Lucretia does with the wit- Witchblade, when it comes back to Sarah, uh, the Witchblade itself says that uh, that the Witchblade is no longer angry anymore. Um, so maybe it had gotten all of its bloodlust out with Lucretia. I wasn't quite sure what the relationship was there. Hmm. Uh, stabbing through the head of uh, Ian Nottingham, I thought was pretty like, holy shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Gabriel is taken over by uh, Kenneth Irons as well, and that was, that was kind of creepy. He actually kissed her in the episode. Apparently, the weapon that Sarah uses, the Glock, the uh, weapon, you know, usually a standard police officer issue firearm, um, mm-hmm. is not able to do what she does with it. It can't just keep clicking. Mm. It is not built that way. It's to uh, prevent any um, backfire of like anything left in the chamber, maybe. Um, but it, she clicks it multiple times, and that weapon is not designed to be able to do that. If there's nothing in the chamber, it will it will not uh, fire. It's a safety oh. for for the gun itself. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. This episode, I for being a season uh, a series finale. I think this was a little bit lackluster. It might have been trying to set things up for uh, season three. I mean, yeah. I just don't Cons- really see that. Uh, I was left with more questions than answers, and there were questions that were kind of more on the line of, where are we going with the show? I also remember a different ending. I swear it's probably the Mandela effect, but I remember Gabriel being in the Ethernet um astral plane place if you're not familiar Mr. Zenka do you know what the astral plane is when people say that in comics yes what is the astral plane the astral plane is a level that is uh, you can actually transcend to it or uh, meditate through it 
but it's basically a level outside of the reality where you can travel, you can see everything almost as if you're a ghost, but it's not visible to the people on this physical plane. Correct. Doctor Strange travels through it in the Doctor Strange movie. Charles Xavier has visited it numerous times, as well as other psychics in the X-Men you know, comic book and film franchise. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty much like the astral plane. So they're like in this astral plane area, and I swear to God, I thought I remember... Gabriel discovering that the uh, spirit of Kenneth Irons is now within him. But all we see is that marking on his hand, which signifies that Kenneth Irons is possibly inhabiting Gabriel's body now. Yeah, but the same type of uh, scarring. Right. Or he's back in his own body, and Gabriel's now like, Gabriel can hold the Witchblade maybe, but maybe not. Um, I remember in the comic books, the, uh, the, the gauntlet, shoot off people's arms, but they probably weren't able to get away with that type of bloodlust in a television show made for cable. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I, I don't know what that really symbolizes, so Gabriel has the mark on his hand. He kind of is taken over by Kenneth Irons. We don't know how deep that control goes. Kenneth Irons wasn't really killed. I mean, if he's digital, it's killed astrally, I suppose, but I don't know. It, there's questions there. And also, um, Gabriel kisses Sarah. Yes, which that was we, weird. Which we brought up to Yancey about, like, we didn't feel as though that was a relationship that shouldn't be pursued. Like, that should be brother and sister. And even she agreed. Maybe, like, maybe Sarah's actual reaction is actually Dan- uh, Yancey's reaction when the actor kisses him. Maybe that wasn't in the script, and that was supposed to be, like, that kind of surprise. Possibly. Uh, you, you're, thinking, you're thinking that um, Yancey didn't know that the she was going to be kissed by Gabriel? Correct. Ah. And her general reaction is actually Yancey's reaction to the whole scene. And they just, because they don't cut, they continue filming. Mm. So maybe, possibly, we don't know. We didn't really get into that too, too much into that question with Yancey earlier. But, I mean, I did bring up the fact that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like that whatsoever. And she didn't seem to like it either. So not that it was inappropriate, it just it just didn't make any sense. It, that that should be a brother sister relationship, not the two of them getting into bed with each other. Um, if anybody, I'd see her getting into bed with Jake. You know what I mean? Like that finally actually happening. But even that, I wouldn't like whatsoever. Deal. In the comic books, they introduce a character called Patrick Gleason. He becomes Sarah's uh, on again off again uh, boyfriend cop uh, cop friend. Mm, yeah. So. Um, Irish Catholic uh, guy who uh, would eventually Sarah would leave the police force and he would continue teaming up with the current uh, the other wielder of the Witchblade now called the Angelus who is a uh, uh, ballerina um, and her mother is actually the captain of the police force but that's the whole other thing golly knows when the Witchblade comic books were going to come back because they were supposed to be coming back this year apparently but I I don't I don't I, I didn't watch the Top Cow panel did you? I did not. Okay, so um, at the time we're recording this, on the 26th, uh, this is the end of what would have been San Diego Comic-Con weekend. And uh, yesterday on the 25th, there was a all-star comic book Top Cow panel. And you can go on YouTube and watch the stars of Top Cow Comics talk about upcoming books and whatever else is happening from Top Cow uh, during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I do have one little bit of uh, information on Lucretia Borgia before we close it out here, because it's pretty salacious here. Okay. Now, Lucretia Borgia got this whole nasty reputation because uh, her half-brother and her were reputed to have been at a uh, a banquet of chestnuts, which was a 
I wouldn't know if it was annual or whatnot, but it was semi-regular. Orgy with 50 prostitutes and clergymen. Yikes. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know if she went there just because she was accompanying her half-brother, but uh, yeah. And that's where she gets a lot of the salacious uh, reputations for uh, political means. Mm, interesting. And that's all the notes I have. That's all the notes I have. There was a Witchblade anime show, which is probably a lot more scandalous than this TV series. It was definitely on par with the comic books with the titillation for it. Um, I mean, when she, uh, the character uh, is in Japan, and so it's after like the Third World War, I believe, and she has been found with a baby um, and the Witchblade. And like six years later, she's still like, you know, trying, like in a dead end job. And the Witchblade activates, and she becomes, like, a completely different person. Like, her hair is, like, red, and she's got the body armor, and her breasts are completely out there. And she almost has, like, an orgasmic feel to the power that the Witchblade gives her as she is just, like, slaughtering people, because it's very anime-ish. But it's insanely titillating. There's constant... I think it's called Echi, which is not... Which is basically borderline hentai, where they tiptoe to the line of hentai. And hentai does not necessarily always mean, like rape fantasy, tentacle pornography. It could just be nudity and sex in a loving situation as well, which there is a lot of anime like that, too. It's not all, you know, raping the female heroine every single episode or movie. So this is, I guess, considered etchy, where it is a borderline hentai with the nudity, but there's no actual nudity in the in this cartoon. So, But that is the only other Witchblade media that's out there. They have years talked about a Witchblade television, uh, another television series, or a Witchblade live-action movie. And even Matt Hawkins, when he came on, couldn't give us any information about that because it's constantly been in and, in and out of development hell. So, but there's no Witchblade comic book right now. Or the, at least the one that was going on ran for 19 issues and it was recently ended. So, and it was by Caitlin Kittredge. And there was a different wheeler of the Witchblade. She was a... Um, uh, uh, what do you call those people who investigate domestic abuse cases? Social worker? Uh, social workers? Yeah, so she was like a social worker, and they really redesigned the Witchblade, so it's not this like TNA kind of comic book anymore. It's very... Um, it, it it barely even resembles the Witchblade. There's no metal involved. It's all like ener- it's like an energy uh, thing that wraps around the woman, and she's got like bandages all over her body, and it's it's energy looking weaponry and stuff. It it looked real. I read it for like four or five issues, and I just could not get into it because I wouldn't care if there was a new wielder of the Witchblade. It just didn't resemble what the Witchblade was at all. So, uh-huh. and I was a huge fan of Caitlin Kittredge's Coffin Hill uh, Vertigo comic book series. So, but Matt Hawkins has hinted that the Witchblade is returning. Sarah is returning. The Darkness is returning, which means Jackie S. Takedo is returning. And of course, there was the 25th anniversary Witchblade trade paperback that you kickstarted. Do you have that yet? I do, I do. That's very exciting to get that in the mail. <laughs> awesome. You put a bunch of scans of that up uh, after we post this episode, before we start our posting of Bill and Ted stuff. So after I post this episode, Mr. Zeneca will have some pictures from this uh, glorious recolored Witchblade uh, heart, uh, uh, graphic novel trade paperback hardcover. What is it? It's it's a trade paperback. Okay, yeah. So put some scans up that of that on the Radio Horror, uh, sorry, on the Dead TV podcast. Uh, Facebook page when you get a chance after I've posted this after I've posted this episode. Sure. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with our first episode of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures with a special guest star who was on the TV series. 
And we'll be on that for a few weeks before we get to War of the Worlds. Thank you for tuning in to the TV's podcast of Witchblade, the series. Thanks to Yancey Butler for coming on the show with us. That was fantastic to have the star of the show on the show with us. Um, and you can find us on our individual Twitters at ChrisDSAV. And at Elegantly Kinky. And you can send us an email, thatradiohorror at gmail.com, with any recommendations of TV series you'd like to have us cover. Again, thank you so much for checking out the Dead TV Podcast coverage of Witchblade the Series.